0: There's got to be a way to win where it isn't about, you know, other people losing because you you don't really win unless you have a strong team and a strong business and a strong strategy.
1: Thought number 20, be kind to the competition. It's one of 28 ideas in Julie Adams' new book, Imperfectly Kind, why kindness is the must-have superpower you need to lead the head of news and entertainment at Rogers Sports & Media and first-time author, joins us on this episode of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. I know what a lot of you radio and TV veterans are thinking. The broadcast industry and kindness aren't exactly symbiotic. And that's one of the questions I put to Adam, who acknowledges some of her own career missteps as she ascended the management ladder. We also talk about some of the people who've inspired her along the way, navigating the pandemic and more. I'm Julie Adam and
0: I'm the president of news and entertainment for Rogers Sports and Media, uh, which is a job I love and an amazing privilege with an awesome team uh, of over 1400 people who are incredible. I you know, started in the business in 1992-ish, when I was at Ryerson taking media or radio and television, the course was called then, and started as an intern in the music department at Q107 for Joey Vendetta and had just an awesome time doing that. The team at Q was so great to me. And uh, from there, I mean, I've done, you know, most jobs in radio. I was on the air for a bit. I went out to Regina. I was in Ottawa. I really loved music. And, and that was my purpose for getting into radio. And along the way, what really dawned on me was that actually what I truly loved was people. And so from uh, Regina to Ottawa on the air, I ended up working in Toronto, which is my hometown for KISS FM, which was the new country radio station. Sharon Taylor hired me to, to come and and they were launching um the New Country Network on television, which I got to be a part of. And it was such a blast. Uh, I loved country music and, you know, I think I had the world's greatest job when I was at KISS, I was the director of artist relations. And I was able to, you know, book these amazing artists to come in and play live and set up interviews. Trisha Yearwood came in and Garth Brooks came in and Dwight Yoakam came in and Shania Twain and on and on and on. Just these, you know, incredible people and incredible artists, the Dixie Chicks and the Mavericks. And uh, it was so wonderful. And we had so much fun doing that. Um, and I did that for a few years and then Rogers bought 92.5 from Rolco. And uh, changed the format to Top 40, which was the format I'd been working before Country. And I had the opportunity to stay on with Rogers. I was was on sort of in a temporary position because there had been so many changes with the team. They needed someone to be the interim program director. I'd never been a program director before. I was the assistant PD at KISS. Um, so they needed someone to do it on an interim basis. And they told me, you know, hey, this isn't going to be your full-time job, but do this for us for a while until the deal closes. And then we'll find you a programming job somewhere in the, in the company, somewhere in the country. And, and um, there was an opportunity in Winnipeg they were thinking about for me. The deal ended up taking uh, longer than they thought it would to close. And, you know, what they thought was going to be you know, a few weeks, maybe a couple of months, ended up turning out to be, you know, over six months. And by that point, I'd hired the staff, you know, and we'd been on the air. And, and, uh, and so, you know, they, they, and I think they tried to hire a couple of people to be the PD of the station, and it didn't work out. And so lo and behold, I got to keep the job. And that was my entry into Rogers, you know, where I've spent, uh, you know, more than 20 years now, which is incredible. You know, you you don't think you're going to stay somewhere, especially in this business for very long. And the next thing you know, 20 years go by, um, which is remarkable. And uh, from KISS, I moved over to CHFI to be the GM and program director. And then, you know, Rogers made me a VP and I ended up taking on programming for the country. And then moved into Head Up Radio, which I did for a few years. And then uh, moved into a couple of years ago, we restructured our media team to focus more on content businesses versus platforms, amalgamated news and entertainment into one business. And I took that business over and I've been doing that for the last, I'm terrible with time, but I'm going to say maybe 18 months uh, it's been now. Our team um, oversees everything that has to do with news uh, on all platforms—radio, television, our community channels, um, and entertainment, which is City TV, FX, FXX, OLN, and then our Omni News brand as well. I should mention also within all of that is our podcast business—you know, our Pacific Content,
1: which does branded
0: podcasts, and Frequency, which is our original network.
1: I have to ask, Julie, because it literally just happened. Your boss, Jordan Banks, was released by Rogers today. What can you tell us, and does this impact your current position at all?
0: Yeah, thanks, Connie. You're definitely doing your job as a journalist asking that question. So I I understand and appreciate that, especially being in the news business. You wouldn't be doing your job if you didn't ask. Um, and I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't say, Hey, that's not really for me to comment on, you know, the, that's a comms, somebody in comms at Rogers can talk to you about that with regards to me, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm in the same role and, and, um, no changes to my role. And, um, so maybe
1: leave it at that. Okay. Let's get into imperfectly kind. You start off the book by talking about why you decided to write it. And I think there are a lot of people in this industry who feel they have a book in them. How did you get started?
0: It's something I've always wanted to do. Um, You know, it's been and and I don't have a good reason for for why I've always wanted to do it, I guess, other than I... I love to read and I love books and, and I like to write, but I have a wild passion for, for books and for reading. And I always have since I was a young, since I was a little kid. And so, you know, you just have, you, you have these things, I think as people, we have these things in our head, right? And so one of the things that's always been in my head was this urge and desire to write a book. And I tried a couple of times, you know, I sat down and I'd get going, and you know, I'd stop, and I—I was always having this sort of inner fight, you know, this back and forth around, you know, I want to write a book, and then my inner voice would say, like, why, you know, who's going to read it? It's not going to be any good. You're not a writer. Why are you doing this? You know, we all have that jerk of an inner voice that cracks our confidence, and um, so I—I I continued to battle with my inner voice, and then, you know, one day. I was out on a dog walk. I remember this um, so clearly. And I had this conversation again, you know, oh, you should write a book. I'd really like to write a book. And, you know, my inner voice chirped in. And then I just sort of said back to myself, which I guess sounds a little odd, you know, who cares if no one reads it? Who cares if it isn't any good? That's not why you're writing it. This isn't about, you know, becoming a a full-time author or a bestseller. Um, this isn't about what anybody thinks. It's something that you want to do and you should just give yourself permission to do it. And I went home and it was like a, it was like someone had given me a magic wand. And I started writing a book that I called this book will fail, you know, which was really giving myself permission. Like, yeah, this isn't going to be any good and no one's going to read it. and, And that's okay. It's going to fail, but you're, you're not, that's failing would be not doing it that's sort of how the journey started. Now I didn't actually end up going anywhere with that. I think I got busy again. And then when COVID hit and, you know, maybe we were 10 months into COVID and I was frustrated and, and I don't do well around negativity. I'm, I'm a, uh, i am i am I kind of turtle, you know, if there's too much negativity around me, I, I, I don't perform and, and I, I can't be around it. And so I wanted to do something that was ultra positive positive. And I get this email in my inbox, like, again, another magic wand uh, from a business writer I really respect, Seth Godin, who had this program that was starting up, I think they were, it was their second round, called Writing in Community. And it was meant for people that really want to write a book um, and they want to publish. And it wasn't about teaching you how to write. It was just about giving you sort of the mechanisms to get it done. And so I joined the course and I committed to myself that I was going to write and release something, which is part of the course. Uh, You make this commitment to release and publish.
1: And that was that. That's the kind of long-winded answer to your question. You reference in the preface some of the leaders who inspired you along the way. Can you talk about some of those people who've influenced you over the course of your career? Sure. I've had the good fortune to work for you know, for and
0: with incredible people. And inspiration, you know, for me, doesn't just come from the people who signed my paycheck. I mean, it it can and it does, but it's also just from the people that I've gotten to know over the years. And, uh, you know, it certainly started, um, I tell this story a lot, you know, when people ask me, you know, who was your first mentor? And, you know, it absolutely started with my dad. Who, you know, both my parents really, but my dad had a pretty profound influence on me. You know, I would say both as a person and as a business person, this notion of being able to be a leader or be in charge um, or be responsible for something and not have to be a jerk about it you know, if you're going to be a boss, you don't have to be a jerk and you don't have to yell at people and you don't have to get mad at people all the time. And, and in fact, I would say it's the opposite. I, I think, you know, people have put up with jerk-like bosses because they have to, but, but they don't really inspire them. And that there really is a difference between, and that you know, the bosses that I've worked for and the people that I'm surrounded by that I get the most inspiration from are people that have high standards are wildly competitive and they're not jerks about it. And instead of, you know, pushing you down, they pull you up and they inspire you to be great. And I've had many people do that for me over the years. And, and, you know, as, as recently as Jordan Banks, who has had a profound impact on me. And in fact, you know, I think he, even with this book, you know, obviously to put something out like this, you know, I need sign off to do it. And like right out of the gates, you know, Jordan said, absolutely. I'm totally supportive and I can't wait to read it. And when you have people like that around you that challenge you and they, they want you to succeed and they push you, it doesn't mean being, you know, letting people do whatever they want or, Having too much slack or, you know, it's the opposite. My first boss at Rogers was Chuck McCoy. He was incredible. I mean, he, was, he, he and Jordan very much alike, like tough in the way that, you know, they competitive want to win, have high standards, but so generous with feedback and knowledge and help. And uh, really caring about you as a human being, not just as a you know an employee. So that that those are some of the the you know amazing memories that I've had, or in the people that have influenced me over the years.
1: I think there is you know just a hint of irony in you writing this as a broadcast executive, because a lot of the things that you talk about, up until maybe the last decade, the industry has really been latent to him brace or acknowledge things like mental health, flexibility, and taking time off for personal issues. Kindness is not often associated with the radio and television business, especially as we continue to see successive rounds of layoffs. You're so right. And, you know, I'd, I'd say there's kind of two thoughts to this. So
0: one is being kind isn't about not making hard decisions. It, you know if you, if you're going to if you are going to be in business you know whether you own a business or you run a business for someone else there's a business responsibility that you have that unless you're a not for profit and frankly even if you are a not for profit because i'm involved with a couple of them it requires some sort of budget and finance management i mean not for profits have to manage finances as well and they have to manage their the, their output of cost versus their input of revenue and donations. And so that's the reality of business. And, and you know, we may not like it. We may not want to have to make decisions around cost cutting, which is really where layoffs come in. But that's our reality. And our personal worlds are no different. If we have less income coming in, we can't spend as much. And if we have more income coming in, we can spend more. I mean, that's how... <laughs> Things work and it works in our personal lives and our professional lives. So we can't mistake difficult choices and hard decisions with kindness. I think what we what we need to do is regardless of what the decision is, and the harder the decision, the kinder you need to be around how you execute it. So I'd love to sit here and say, you know, there's never going to be another layoff in any business. You know, I'd love to sign a contract somewhere that says I never have to do that again. It's the worst. You know, impacting someone else's livelihood is the absolute worst. But it's not realistic, is it? You have to make these tough decisions. And it might sound odd or wrong, frankly, but I believe this is, you know, you have to make decisions that are kind to the business. And if those impact people, you have to find a way to be kind to them as you're impacting them. And that's where, you know, having empathy and thinking about, you know, how this decision is going to impact other people and how they're going to feel when they get this message, and what it's like to sit on the other side of the table. You know, all of that plays into why kindness is something that you you need to embody as a leader.
1: One of the things I like about this book is that there are moments where you put all your cards on the table, and one of the best stories in the book surrounds your move to fire Erin Davis from CHFI in 2003 and replace her with Mad Dog and Billy, and how you couldn't escape public judgment around that, even as you were going into labor. Do you want to talk about taking ownership of mistakes? I don't think a week goes by that I don't make a mistake.
0: I mean, you know, anybody uh, listening to this, you know, put your hand up if you've never made a mistake. We all make them. And, you know, we make them with our, you know, in our personal lives, we make them in relationships. I was running a meeting last week, and it was this week, and I sort of called an audible partway part through because, it, you know, it wasn't going well. And, you know, I, my expectations from the people in the meeting were off. And so, you know, I finally just jumped in and said, hey, I, I'm not doing a good job here. I've got a shift on this. So they can be small things like that. So we're making these sort of mistakes all the time. You know, I've shifted strategies on brands that have been like downright wrong. You know, we're going in one direction. I get, I don't like the results. You know, I knee jerk and make a shift on a strategy. I did that with Kiss in the early days when I was programming it. Because, you know, you want to take action, right? When things aren't going well, you want to do something to make them better. And so you knee jerk into these decisions and, and, and then, you know, often you cause more harm than good. I can be, be quick to have an assumption around something and, and make that assumption. And then, you know, 24 hours later, I need to unwind it. For people that know the story, the famous story is Aaron Davis and me firing her and, you know, taking the highly rated CHFI um, way down in the ratings and losing a ton of revenue I think the only reason I wasn't fired is because it just got to the point where people were like, you know, Julie, you got to fix this. Like, you screwed it up. We're, you got to clean up your own mess. And yeah, there was, you know, public turmoil. And in, in the world of social media now, you get called out on everything. But you've got to, I mean, unless your mistakes are, you know, horrendous, you've got to be able to sort of get through them and get to the other side of them. And and when you make a mistake that hurts someone, you got to be able to apologize and you have to be able to own it. And then you get on with it and you have to be okay with it. There's the, this expression around one-way door decisions and two-way door decisions. And most decisions are, have two-way doors. You make the decision, you go through the door, it's the wrong decision, you can come out the another door and, and, and switch. And I tell my kids this all the time you're going to make a bunch of wrong decisions and most of them are going to be two-way doors. You know, the ones that are one-way doors, try not to make those, you know, think hard about things that are one-way doors, but we've got to be okay with it. You know, and we have to stop sort of apologizing for, or, or I shouldn't say apologizing because if you make a mistake and you hurt someone, you should
1: apologize, but we have to stop. Once we've done that, we've got to move on and stop beating ourselves up endlessly. Right, and to that end, Aaron Davis is thanked in the credits of the book. Yeah, Aaron and I have an awesome relationship. You know, I tell you a few things. My
0: changes at CHFI, you know, that we took a swing at something. You know, the and Aaron and I, Aaron would talk about this. That you know, her partner Don, <clears throat> excuse me, Don Danard had left, and the show that was running, you know, maybe didn't have the magic and the chemistry that it needed, and. You know, I took a swing at a new solution, at a, and and um, and it didn't work. It was the wrong decision. But you know, Aaron and I never had a bad. You know, we never said a bad word to each other. Like, sh- sh- I mean, even even in making that decision, um, I recognized that Aaron was a total icon. One of the things that you know I did pretty early in that was I apologized to her. I mean, we, I think we ended up on a panel together or maybe at a CMW event together. And then, you know, I said, Hey, would you like to, you know, would you have a coffee with me? And we had a coffee and I just said to her like, I'm sorry. That was a, that was a bad, you know, it was a bad business decision. You know, we, we we're going backwards here and I'm really sorry. And I didn't handle it well. And then, you know, she came back. I asked her if she would come back and she did. You know, she brought Mike Cooper with her and, you know, the station went back to its rightful spot at number one and they had a hell of a run together and we had a blast and they taught me so much. You know, Erin is the epitome of treating people well. You know, she was always nice, no matter who, you know, you, and so recognizable and no matter where you went, someone would recognize Erin and she would be, she would stop and she would be so nice to them. And it didn't matter what your business card said. You know, I used to always say to her, like, you know, she was the perfect, she was perfect. She would come to me if she had a, you know, a concern or her and Mike, they, you know, they'd be in my office saying like, hey, this isn't going well, you need to fix it. And they treated everyone with the ultimate respect. And yes, she helped me. So I should give her a thanks. She helped me with, you know, Aaron wrote a book. And, um, you know, I had a couple of questions about, a few questions about the process and, she and uh, Rob, her husband, uh, were quick to jump in and give me some answers that I needed. And, you know, we've stayed in touch and, and uh, stayed very close over the years.
1: One of the things you talk about in your chapter about more inclusive hiring practices is how leaders shouldn't see issues like the pay equity gap as someone else's problem. And so now that you're in the role that you're in, is that something you've been able to tackle? Because it was a very, very real issue for many, many years in the industry.
0: Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's a couple of things. First of all, am I perfect? No. You know, have I been able to tackle all of the things that we need to tackle? Absolutely not. I mean, we're nowhere near where we need to be as an industry around diversity. Nowhere near it we have so much work to do. Are we better? A hundred percent, but are we there? Not at all. And, you know, I do, I do put this on my team and myself and my team that, you know, we're the ones with the power. And so it's up to the people with power, which, you know, in our industry are primarily white. It's up to us to fix this. You know, it's up to the people in power to give power you know, it's not up to women who aren't in power to get more women in power because they, you know, that doesn't work. It's not. So we, you know, we, the people with power have to figure out a way to give power. And no, like I'm I'm not there yet. I, am I proud of, you know, some of the things we've done? Yes. But there's so much more work to do. We just have to keep at it. You know, I, I'm grateful that the industry has changed. I mean I don't think I think you know we we had a track record in the early days of you know one not being particularly inclusive, not being diverse, and I think we did we were okay with sort of you know jerks kind of running rampant in the business. And I think we were a lot better now. You know, I think we we spend a lot more time thinking about our culture. We spend a lot more time thinking about what happens when there's a bully on the team and how that impacts the rest of the team and how you're really never going to get the best out of a team if there's someone in there, either a leader or a teammate that is behaving badly, regardless of how much they're contributing, regardless of how good their revenue or their ratings are, you know, we've got to, we've got to, we've got to just stop that kind of behavior I think we're much better at it. That doesn't mean, and, you know, there's a real difference between being a bully and a complete disrespectful jerk that breaks teams down and being someone that has strong opinions and likes to add sandpaper to a conversation and debate. I mean, those are, you know, we want more of that. You want more diversity of thought. You want more, you want teams to be able to debate things. You don't want everyone to have the same opinion. You don't want people, everybody walking around saying, yes, yes. Uh, yes, yes, yes. But there's a way to do it where, um, you know, you're not tearing the heart out of people, and particularly those that I think,
1: you know, really prey on their power, and they, they use it and abuse it. You were one of the few women executives in telecommunications in Canada. And last time I checked, that number was still well below 5%. Do you think some of the ideas that you put forward in the book, like being kind and tough, as you alluded to, are ideas that are more likely to come from a woman executive?
0: I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think as we started this conversation and I talk about my dad and then, you know, I referred to, you know, some of the incredible bosses that I've had and primarily, you know, I've had, I don't know what percent. My bosses have been, but the majority have been men. I've primarily worked for men, not not all. I've had some amazing women leaders that I've worked for, um, and incredible women leaders that I work with. And you know, so many of the men on our team are kind and tough. So I I, I actually think it's risky to, you know, make excuses that leaders you know, are going to be defined by their gender. I think that's part of the problem. You know, I think what we want to do is be able to have sort of, you know, core values and excellent traits that we want our leaders to embody, regardless of, you know, what their gender is, or how they identify. And people are, everyone's different. You know, you, that's the amazing thing about people and how I lead and how I, how I want to be led is very different than others. So I'm of the mind that, you know, we can't put these things only on women, you know, just as I think we would say it's ridiculous. And I'm going to exaggerate to make a point here to say that, you know, only men can be good at, you know, finances or engineering. You know, I don't think we want, we don't want to do that. So I do live in this sort of happy place in my brain, which is like, no, anybody can do whatever they want regardless of gender, regardless of how you identify, regardless of race, um, regardless of social status or upbringing. And that's the place we want to get to as, as a business and as a, as a country and
1: as a world, and certainly as a team. A lot of people are going to read this book who work for Roger Sports and Media right now, or they've worked for the company in the past, including me. And they're going to say, well, what Julie's talking about here, embracing talent who challenge the status quo, encouraging employees to be themselves, creating the environment where employees feel they can ask for help. They're going to say, that wasn't my experience. And so the question I want to put to you is, how many of your colleagues do you think are practicing what you talk about in Imperfectly kind?
0: first of all, everybody's entitled to their own opinion. And I'm pretty sure that I don't have hundred percent, you know, there isn't hundred percent affinity for me and I'm not perfect. And there's no question that, you know, I've booted the ball uh, on many occasions and I'm sure that not every experience with me or with, you know, our company has been perfect because that's, that's impossible. And that's kind of my point. Is we're not perfect. No one's perfect, and it's about sort of aiming for this north star. I like to think that our organize that our you know company Rogers and I'm sure there's some cynicism that if like of course what else am I going to say? But uh, I think we have an awesome team. And are we perfect? No. Are we working really hard to make sure that we're eliminating? you know any bad behavior and bad leaders absolutely we have retooled our hiring practices we are we have programs running to help coach leaders to embody all of these and more of our all of our values into lead differently you know our mantra is that every person deserves a leader you know that cares about them and not just their performance because yes of course business is important but cares about them perfectly so are we perfect? No. You know, if your experience was years ago and you didn't have a great experience, you know, anyone listening to this? I mean, that's fair and, and likely undeniable. But the goal is to get better and continuously improve. And so I hope, I hope most of the people now feel, you know, they have a, have a manager that really cares about them. And if they don't, there's a route for them to sort of put their hand up and say like, hey, this isn't working for me. And can I get some extra help? Um, I hope. Are we there yet? No, we have to continue to build that trust. But I think we're going in the right direction.
1: One of the things that resonated with me right away is thought number 16, be a time hero. Show your team kindness and respect by valuing their time. And I thought that that you know, was particularly resonant right now with work from home and the inordinate number of Zoom or Teams meetings that some people are having to juggle with everything else going on in their lives. Could that meeting have been an email? Do you want to talk about time? It's the thing that we never get back, right? That's a one, time's a one-way door. You know, every
0: minute that that ticks by, you never get it back you know, life goes by so fast and, you know, I don't want to get too philosophical here. And I don't know, maybe I am feeling really philosophical, you know, maybe COVID, you know, sort of Sharpie underlined this sort of sentiment that I have. And maybe it's because my boys are getting older, you know, where it's, you know, I just don't have that much time left. I mean, we know, we none of us really know how much time we have left and, and we need to embrace it. And we need to spend as much time as possible doing the things that we want to do and as little time as possible doing the things we don't want to do. And I've always been wired that way. You know, I've not, I'm, not very, I'm not good at doing things I don't want to do. You know, it's probably what got me into trouble as a kid uh, in school and why I was not a good student, because there was so much time spent on things that I either didn't think were interesting or I thought were a waste of time or didn't connect with me. And I never understood why I have to put so much time into something that, you know, isn't meaningful. And I still feel the same way today. And as a leader who has the power to control other people's time because I can call a meeting and people are paid to show up, right? That's what your business card gives you. You sure as heck better make good use of it. You're not just spending your own currency. You're spending someone else's and you have the power to do that. And power is a privilege. So, you know, and again, am I perfect? Absolutely not. Do my meetings go longer than they need to? I'm sure they do. But I am intentional and I try really hard not
1: to waste people's time. You say in the book you could write another one just based on what you've learned during COVID.
0: Yeah, COVID has been, um, you know, I, I, at the end of 2021, I over the break, I spent some time you know, putting my sort of reflections together of, you know, what I learned through COVID. And, you know, the, the, I just wrote about this to to my team today, you know, just the, this, the, the number one with a bullet for me is, is focusing on what you can control when COVID happened. And, you know, we got through sort of this initial, like the first thing was, okay, how are we going to get people home and safe? And that was the most important thing. And once we start to get a handle on that, you know, I've got an eye to the business and I'm watching our our revenue numbers, you know, implode across radio and across television. And you're just watching, you know, the revenue decline and decline and decline. You know, and at one point, I mean, I think in one part of the business, we were down 70%. And, you know, I, the weight of that and the weight of those business results Uh, And that's my job. My job is to deliver, you know, business results was debilitating. You know, it took me some coaching, you know, coaching myself and some other coaching to sort of really, really understand that I just got to focus on what I can control and that this isn't my fault. You know, I didn't start COVID, you know, businesses haven't been shut down. That's not my fault. You know, people not wanting to advertise that that's not my fault. And, you know, I think as someone that, you know, prides themselves on being um, conscientious and respons- responsible and accountable, there was a whole bunch of stuff I couldn't take the blame for. And once I got, got that, once that sort of light bulb went off, it was like magic. And I was able to really get into a groove and recognize that, okay, but there are some things in my control here that I can do. And so let me focus on those things. And that to me, you know, there's a whole book on that and all the other things around communication and and understanding that, you know, how people are experiencing, you know, lockdowns is wildly different. Some people were, were thrilled to go and work from home. And other people were, you know, downright depressed over it. You know, some people had, you know, no time to themselves because they had family members and and particularly parents of young kids where they just couldn't get a minute when they, you know, everybody's in the house and there's no care, no child care for their kids and they're trying to do their job. And then other people had too much time on their hands. You know, they're, they're locked in, they live by themselves and they're not able to visit their family or their friends. And, you know, what are they thinking about? And so that, uh, I mean, in this, you know, COVID, I, you know, there's another chapter in getting through Omicron and the impact that it's having on our, you know, on our workforce. And I could go on and on and on, but there's no question that, you know, we've all been tested as you know, leaders and humans. And we've learned a lot and I'm really grateful. I mean, I wish this didn't had never happened, but I have learned a lot and there's a lot of good that's come out of it for me um, as a leader and understanding, you know, what my role in the
1: world is. But yeah, it's been, it's been tricky. That's for sure. Are there any thoughts from the book that you want to highlight? I thought, be kind to the competition was a great one. Yeah, for that one was the hardest one for me to write because I think I believe it in principle, but I'm, uh, I still
0: struggle with how to execute on it. But it is this, tr- just, tr- I guess for me, it's just trying to flip things on their head so that um, you can bring a different perspective to it. And, you know this notion that if your if you if you win, your competitor has to lose, and if your competitor wins, you have to lose. You know it's not a that's not a great mindset because it suggests that you know there's a fixed a fixed outcome that can't grow, and you know there's a whole psychological and and business uh, commentary around the difference between growth mindsets and fixed mindsets. But if in your brain you think there's a fixed amount of whatever, you know, revenue, subscriptions, you know, audience, you know, and that's all there is and that pie can't get bigger. It's really hard to think about ways to bring new people to the party or new ideas to the party. And if you're so fixated on, you know, for me to win this person or this thing or this company needs to lose you're probably stuck in this fixed mindset. And that doesn't mean that you don't want to beat your competition because of course you do. I mean, we're in business and that's, that's what our job is. And, you know, when the Australian open, you know, kicks into gear next week and, you know, when sports teams play, I mean, they're there to beat the competition, but there's gotta be a way to win where it isn't about, you know, other people losing because you, you don't really win, unless you have a strong team and a strong business and a strong strategy. And that's the way to winning and thinking about how you grow and get better at what you do versus just taking away, you know, from other people. I mean, it's kind of in a sports analogy, you know, you can't just play defense because no amount of defense, and you know, even if you keep your, even if you keep your, your competition to zero, you got to score at least one point. And so that's how I'm thinking about that, and and thinking about growing our industry versus just competing over the the you know the pie
1: that exists. Is there a single big takeaway that we haven't touched on yet from the book that you want to leave people with? I you know first of all I just say thank you for having me
0: on and for your support. Um, I really appreciate it. It's very generous uh, of you and of Broadcast Dialogue. So so I'd say that first. Thank you. If anybody from RSM uh, is listening, I'd say, you know, thank you for your hard work and for all that you do. And then for the industry at large, thanks to everybody that is working hard to, you know, take care of Canadians, either from an audience point of view or a, or a um, customer and advertiser point of view. I mean, I mean that sincerely, you know, it's been a really tough year. And regardless of where you work or who you work for, you know, a shout out and, and keep going and, you know, keep innovating and raising the bar because when one person company brand raises the bar, it's, it inspires the rest of us to do the same. So I, I think I would say that And maybe my other takeaway would be all of us have the power to do great things. You know, we, as individuals, if there's something you really want to do, go out and do it. And you know, that's what I would say about this book is, you know, this book's not going to become a bestseller, but I'm really happy I did it because it's something I really wanted to do. And it was a great learning curve. And I proved to myself that I could do it, whether anybody reads it or not, the goal is to publish it. And so I'd say the same to anyone listening. If you've got something on your list that you want to do, figure out a way to get it done and don't put it off because time is a one-way door and you're not going to get it back and you can do more than you think you can and the community will rally around you. The support that I've received from uh, the community has been incredible from family to friends to colleagues to strangers you know people are there to to support you and lift you up so I guess I would just say that you know get out there and, and do what makes you happy and do what challenges you. Have you gotten some interesting feedback, Julie? I mean, people have been so generous. They've been truly generous. And, you know, I would say that the, the, you know, real takeaway for me was, you know, right, this course that I took writing in community was with a bunch of strangers, which was amazing, because it's really easy to sort of put yourself out there with people that you've never met. And it was people all over the world, um, but this power of, in the way the course works is you write every day and you post what you've written and then people give you feedback. And it was that feedback that got me going, you know, whether it, the feedback from initially from the writing in community, you know, the, my brother, who's a, who's a real writer. <laughs> I always say, you know, I wrote this just so that I could figure out how it works. And then the real writer in the family can release a book, um, you know, when I finally had the guts to, he and I were really close. And when I finally had the guts to tell him, because I didn't want to tell anyone unless I was super serious about it. You know, he, I sent him some stuff and then just, you know, him not telling me it was gar- was garbage was meant so much to me and it kept me going and, You know, my kids, like my boys who, you know, a lot of the times don't respond to, you know, my messages were like right there by my side and telling me to go. And, you know, the same with my husband and, you know, my friend group. And it was just that, you know, just pure, pure feedback and constructive feedback. People told me, you know, hey, this doesn't look great. Why don't you try it this way was so important. And, you know, when you really care about someone, you're willing to give them feedback uh, for, for good or for not so good, constructive or positive, you know, and then when I said that I was going to release it, you know, my colleagues and team and the outreach on LinkedIn was incredible from, from the industry. So yeah, it was a real, I really felt, um, supported and, and I'm so appreciative of that. I mean, I, I, I think I would get, you know, kind of choked up talking about it. Um, you know, I really want, to, you know, I, I'm, I hope, and I'm aiming for, and I guess I'm swinging for leaving some kind of legacy for my kids. And, you know, I really want my boys to know that, you know, they can go out there and and they can, they can do what they want, but they got to be kind along the way. And that's really what the mission is with all of this is to give those boys, hopefully, you know, some solid footing to go out and do whatever it is they want to do and, and be, and be kind, humans, uh,
1: and take care of people along the way. Where can people pick up "Perfectly Kind"?
0: Uh, you can get it um, online through Indigo or Amazon. And if you you know want links, and you can uh, go to julieadam.ca, or you just do a search for "imperfectly kind" through Amazon or through Indigo. Thanks so much for joining us, Julie. Thank you so much. It was wonderful to talk to you and um, thanks for all you do. And thanks for all Broadcast Dialogue does. You know, you've, uh, you've had to swing through COVID as well. And I think those awards you created are just amazing. And they've, they've put such a step in the industry. And we're really appreciative and grateful for all that you do to support the community. So thank you.